Okay, welcome. This is the much discussed, uh, well, actually, I don't know about much discussed, much anticipated on my part, at least. Maybe there's a few of y'all out there that feel the same way as me, but welcome back to the uh, TD pod, as uh, Mark Moore from Our Daily Bears coined it for Travis and Davis, or Travis Roeder here with Jeff Davis. We are getting closer and closer to the season, and I'm ready to talk ball. I've been begging Jeff to do this. Um, I think he's finally starting to get the itch and have some time to really dive into things. Jeff, how is your football um, anxiousness and preparedness and feelings at this point on a July 14th? How are you feeling? Well, I, it's funny you say that because it, I, this is the latest I've gone without feeling the football itch maybe in my life. So at the end of a, so I, Travis is hundred percent right. Um, you know, we try to talk about this a few times over the last few months. And then at the end of April, uh, my house flooded. And so I've been out of the house. I'm still currently in a rental house at the moment. Uh, and we won't be back in until probably Labor Day. And being a middle-aged guy that's about to turn 40 and having a house flood kind of drove out almost all of my football preoccupations for the last couple months. And so last week I was uh, in my hometown back in Paris and uh, drove, um, drove by uh, the old football stadium that I used to play at. And it kind of got me thinking about it in earnestness for the first time heavily. So usually by like mid June, like the day after the NBA finals are over with, I'm getting into Dave Campbell, Texas football and breaking out all 22 and starting to really go for it. But this year it's definitely been a longer, a little bit of a longer haul, but I, I am, I'm interested and ready and <laughs> ready to ready to talk about something that doesn't involve spending money on trying to decide what color countertops and uh, texture the walls are supposed to be. Cause that's a big point of discussion right now is our walls are too textured in the bath or excuse, not in the bathroom, but in the kitchen and trying to find the right textures, you know, it's a, it, it's an important question oh. that, he asked and answered. Um, but yeah, it takes more time than you would think to answer that question. If you need to consult somebody on that, Jeff, uh, do not consult me because I don't care either. And I, I have a feeling you might be in the same boat. So that <laughs> might be the problem. <laughs> okay, whatever. You go with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to tell you to feel the silver lining on everything, but I, I've been at a stage for a couple weeks now to where it's like almost like it's acutely painful to even think about football anymore because. I've been going so hard at it for a few months now that the fact that we still have another six, seven, eight, nine weeks, whatever it is until the season starts, that it's super painful. So maybe you'll kind of hit the sweet spot for something else forced your attention away. And now you can dive in right at the right amount of time. That's that's the hope is that I'm, I'm I've, I've actually planned out a stuff that I want to rewatch in a few basically a few teams or really a few schemes that I'm really interested in and watching over the next few weeks. So. That's that's what I'm going to spend the next couple of months doing, the type of stuff that most, not that I'm a coach, but this is the type of thing that a lot of coaches will do in February and in March. Um, I just, you know, I don't spend nearly as much time doing that, and I'm kind of a little interested to see what I've got to look at it uh, later in the summer. And it's a way to really bridge bridge the gap from once I start feeling that excitement to this lull of you get news, but it's usually not real news, you know, particularly at the college level, there's not you're not going to really get a lot of big, important information coming out of training camp. They just, there's no reason for the coaches to really publicly divulge any of that stuff. And you can kind of look at our, uh, we had a good, I know you and I had a good laugh this week when the new official rosters came out and some people gained about five inches in height, but lost 40 pounds. And I mean, it was <laughs> all over the place. And just college coaches have no, have absolutely no incentive to care about any of that stuff in terms of public perception. So 
unlike in the NFL where you do actually get a lot of interesting data from honestly preseason games if you're a nerd like me and you like watching what the your second and third tier players are doing but at the college level it's really a lot of hurry up and waiting until week one yeah I think I think it was it was either Bryles or Gundy that were like talking about the coaches poll one time and they were like don't you guys understand I've never filled one of these out in my life like I make a staffer do this and you can kind of apply that to like Coaches got, especially the head coach, like they ain't got time for that kind of stuff. You can apply that to all the other kind of small news, like you were saying, the roster and everything else that disseminates throughout the offseason. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, we're going to do some kind of shorter episodes um, in, in so fitting with how Jeff is describing his life is pretty crazy right now. Uh, what we're going to try and do is kind of hit a specific topic week by week until the season starts. And then presumably we'll do some stuff throughout the season as well. But obviously we'll have games to talk about then. Um, but instead of trying to do kind of like a whole team preview that would take us four hours in one go, we're going to hit topic by topic, hopefully week by week here. And the topic I wanted to start with, because I think it's pretty integral to, to Baylor season is Baylor's offensive run game. You know, the setup we wanted to do here was what is the best case scenario? What is the worst case scenario? And what is our kind of most solid middle ground expectation and another reason we chose this unit is because it's something where the information really shouldn't shouldn't change very much after fall camp. We really know who the offensive line is. We know who the running backs are. We know the tight ends. We know the quarterback. You know, the left guard spot is open, which I'm sure we'll discuss a little bit, but that's not really going to change any sort of trajectory of the offense at this point. Um, so I think we kind of have the information we need to discuss this, even though we're eight weeks out. And I guess, Jeff, if we just want to dive right in here. Um, the first question I want to start with is, you know, as you and I have discussed a lot, and it's been a kind of consistent theme this offseason, talking about how Jeff Grimes really went all in on kind of installing a few base concepts last year, run from a lot of different formations. But, you know, I, I've tried to guesstimate the total number of plays Baylor ran last year. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound like a total idiot, but it couldn't have been something more like 20 or 30 on a regular basis. And, you know, at the forefront of, of, of the Baylor offense was the wide zone play. Um, they also ran something called mid zone, but that's, it's basically the same blocking, correct? It's, that's just changes the angle of the, the path of the running back. So essentially Baylor ran one play last year, um, as a run play. And again, that's a oversimplification. They had change ups, they had some, some curveballs to use, but when you're talking about 90% of the time running Y zone, you know, why was that Baylor's path last year? Why did they not have more in the toolkit? You know, so I, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do the Dave Aranda. I'm gonna tell you that I appreciate that question. Um, if you got to hear his press conference at all uh, yesterday, he he did a lot of. We're recording this on Thursday, the 14th. Um, he, Aranda did a lot of telling reporters how much he appreciated the question, but uh, I think they really did it for two reasons. You know, wh why did they run only two plays primarily, wide zone and mid zone? Uh, they did that. I did think they did that for a couple reasons. The first one is. It's difficult to go to this scheme, particularly for an interior offensive lineman. You know, uh, I think we kind of forget this, but Rule tried to go down this route a little bit at the beginning of the 2017 season. And for reasons, <laughs> well, I think... <laughs> watching Blake Blackmar try that was not not ideal. Yeah, I mean, I love Blake. Um, Blake is, a, you know, he's, he's the dean of the Baylor Meat Mafia. Um, he's a great power guard. Um, he is awesome. He, outside zone is not his game and he would right. tell you the same thing. 
And so at some point at the end of 2017 and definitely by into 2018, they kind of abandoned that and went back to what they ran under art, which was this traditional um, IZ inside zone power based um, run game. And that's similar, you know, I, I don't even know what you would really call Baylor's run game in 2020. It's probably best to just avoid it. But for sure, there was not a coherent, there wasn't a coherent game plan around building out the run game um, prior to uh, last year. And so last year, they they asked those guards to really do something very different. And it's it's tough to play guard in this scheme. You know, if you're a, if you're a bit of a football junkie, um, you know, I uh, Ben Sims this week compared their offense a lot to San Francisco, and that's pretty accurate. I mean, San Francisco from a blocking combination standpoint, okay, the the pass the passing game is very different, but from a from a run game standpoint, a lot of what they do in the run game is very similar to what San Francisco does, down even to what they the terminology is that they use. Um, and so, one of the things that San Francisco um, really does they spend a lot of money on their guards and their centers and if you if you pay attention to the nfl you hear that all the time it's the center it's the tackles and you know you don't need the guards as much um i i really don't think that's true it's just that in the nfl you spend more money on those guys and so it you people think that it's easy to play that guard position and it's really not zach martin has excelled because he's outstanding at this not because he's just a big guy it's because he's got great feet um, and he's, his eyes are outstanding. And to play guard in this system, you have to have really, really, really good eyes. And you have to have a lot, you've got to have a little bit more pop. And what I mean by that is you, in order to generate power, you've got to be more flexible at the hips and you've got to be able to be fast out of your stance to generate that pop and that power. But you also have to be able to do combination blocks and have really fast eyes in a way that you don't when you're at the tackle or at the center. Because a lot of times, if you're at the tackle or the center, based off the alignment, you kind of know what you're doing before the snap. And for the most part, you're not changing up. You're not changing up much once you get out your angle of departure. You're just executing the block that you know you need to do ahead of time. That's not the case for the guards. For guards, you could be blocking up to three different people two steps after the snap, depending on who has moved into what, you know, what zone of, of what your particular zone is. So, right. So, so like Khalil Keith at right tackle, he knows that, you know, if he's got a five tech defensive end lined up more or less head up over him, you know, he's, he's either blocking that guy or he's told he's not blocking that guy pretty much. Like it's very straightforward, either manhandle that dude or go for the backside linebacker yes. most of the time. But, you know, your left guard or your right guard, especially when they don't have anybody lined up head up over them, which is something we talked about a lot last year that Baylor's guards struggled with, especially early in the year, is when they're uncovered and having to find guys in space, they struggled. And that was always something that we said, you know, it doesn't mean that these guys are bad players, but adjusting to that scheme of being able to find guys in space post-snap when you don't, when, like you were saying, it's going to be one of three guys pre-snap, an incredibly difficult skill. It is. It, and it's, it is a very, very difficult skill. If you can block well on the move, you can make it in the NFL. Now, you may just be a career backup, but you're still going to make pretty decent money as a career backup. You know, the league minimum is still a lot more than I make. That is for sure. <laughs> um, but it's it's a tough skill. And I you can see it with some of the recruits that they've looked at this year where you can kind of see what they're looking for at that guard, which is you need that power, but you need those eyes and the ability to kind of have a natural ability to block. Um, Yonda, who was the left, the best guard that I've ever seen, if you if, if anyone is actually curious about this, uh, Marshall Yonda, um, who was the right guard, not left guard, the right guard for the Baltimore Ravens for a number of years, 
Uh, he was a little bit undersized compared to most power guards, but he he was he's the best I've ever seen at blocking people subtly on the move. And there's a very famous clip of his where, and it's almost impossible to describe it without going to look it up. But he basically on there's there's a run that gains about twenty yards off the right side, and he blocks. He makes three specific blocks on the same play. And so the, I, I got to describe this out loud because he doesn't block anyone heads up, but he makes the play. And this is what we talk about with eyes. So there's a guy that's lined up between the, uh, I'll, I'll use more layman term. There's a guy that's lined up, or there's a defensive tackle lined up between the guard and the center. And so at the snap, he comes off and he doesn't hit him with his hands, but he bumps his hip. Um, the uh, Marshall Yonda is taking off to his right. Okay, and he bumps that defensive tackle with his left hip, which stops his momentum, and that allows the center to get around him and stop that individual linebacker. So that's one block. Then he takes two steps and he reaches out his right arm, and there's a defensive end that's right that's about to get inside of the offensive tackle, and he sticks his arm out and just kind of long arms and just very gently shoves that guy over. And now the defensive end is now completely and totally engulfed by the offensive tackle. So he's now assisted with two blocks. He takes off down the field and about three yards, excuse me, about five yards down the field, he makes contact with the uh, middle linebacker and drives him about another five yards. And it's a play that gains like 12 yards, I think, but he blocks three different guys on that play because he knows, he understands the angles in a way that requires a very high degree of body intelligence. Like you're not consciously thinking like, I bet if I put my hip there, that'll help. It you just do it. Your body just does it, and you can't. It's very. It's a very very difficult thing to coach. Um, but you know he does that in an exquisite way, and that's you know oh that's a level of play well beyond what I would ever expect a Baylor offensive lineman to be able to do, particularly in college. Uh, but that's the type of movement skills that really you need from a guard. You don't necessarily need huge amounts of athleticism. You need more twitch, and you need really good feet. Um, so getting back, but getting back to the original, why did they run this? Those two plays, it, it takes a long time to get comfortable with it. And so what I really think that they did last year is they took those two plays and said, we can do this. We can build a lot of counters off of these plays, which is we can get, we can get guys eyes moving in specific directions. And eventually we can hit them with the curveball or the counter punch or whatever the term is that you want to use. Um, and we'll be able to do that. And the perfect example of that would have been the Sugar Bowl uh, with the, you know, with the um, jet sweep. Jet, yeah, with the jet sweep, which is they ran that mid zone play, <laughs> I don't know what, 20, 25 times at three yards per carry. <laughs> three yards per carry. And then it's you, you just, it's so hard as a defender to maintain eye discipline on every snap. Yeah, it right. really is. Um, and you saw that on that play on the replays. The defensive end looks right at the ball carrier and doesn't even see him because yep. he's so used to crashing down. He looks through the guy and runs past him like like he's, I don't know, a student like that's run onto the field and he's supposed to get a hold <laughs> His brain doesn't even comprehend because he's been having to cover the backside on that contain for 30 times during that play. And the one time he missed it, 55 yeah. yards and that, that ice the game. I mean, it didn't, yeah. it didn't super duper ice it, but it really, at that point it was don't do anything dumb and the game's over. Yeah. Um, and you, you can build those plays off of that 
even if you're only getting two to three yards and, you know, I mean, offensive output was not great in the Sugar Bowl, but, and there's a few reasons for that, but you can run those plays and then run the counters. And that's something we saw a lot of, that's something we saw Baylor do a lot of last year. Um, particularly another good example of that, the two that really come to mind are Texas and Oklahoma. In both those cases, the, the play that really, really, or the two plays that really stand out to me, in the second half against against Texas, they started almost every single drive with the QB power because they just knew based off the alignment that they had Texas for like 20 yards. And I think every the start of almost every single drive in the second half was GB just running like QB power or off that midline zone where he would just do a keeper and just fall up the middle and it's 15 to 20 yards. Um, they did the same thing against Oklahoma, where Oklahoma was crashing back and crashing, was crashing hard and crashing the front side just as hard as you possibly could. And they ran, it wasn't a counter, but they ran more or less a, a I, I don't even know what you really call it, but it was almost like a lag midline zone where the angle of departure was not, was to the left of the outside, out left of the lineman as they're moving to the right. And that was the first or second run play of the fourth quarter. And that was the play where, um, Abram went for like 85 yards on one run play. You know yeah. I mean? Yes. Enormous gashes. Yep. And so they were, they knew the defense was going to be good and they knew that they could protect the ball and protect GB and, and just kind of grind it out. And so that's why I think you saw such a limited experience with that running a, the other thing I'll say is we talked about this earlier, you know, I, I said that it takes a long time to get used to that blocking scheme, but it also takes a lot of effort to maintain it. You know, the teams that run wide zone, they typically do it constantly. Now they have more, they have more plays in the run plays in the bag that they will go with, but you know, 50% of all run plays are going to be 50 to 60% of all run plays are always going to be wide zone. It's just a question of what are we doing with the remaining 40 to 50%. Last year it was almost all mid zone. This year, I think it's, you're going to see a much, much bigger mixture. Yeah. But, you know, it, we won't really know. And I think the honest answer is we probably will not see. I mean, we're not going to see anything against Albany. I mean, if, if, <laughs> if we're seeing anything complex against Albany, I'll be absolutely flabbergasted. And, I'll, you know, Jeff Grimes has, has forgotten more than I'll ever know, but I'm still going to go down and take his hipster glasses from him and, you know, yell at him if we see all the good stuff against Albany. I'm sure that we will see against BYU, like, what they really want to do with the run game for the rest of the season. We'll see that on tape against BYU. Yeah, I think your point about the fact that, you know, I wrote an article this offseason talking about how I think what Aranda, part of what makes Aranda good now and I think makes him a potentially elite coach going forward is the fact that he is all in on building a cohesive and um, what's the word I'm looking for, a complementary team. And that's coach speak, right? Like every coach is going to say they want to play complementary football. But with Baylor, we have an exact example of that, which is what you were discussing last year, which is, you know, against basically everyone except for the TCU debacle, they knew they were going to hold all these teams under 24 points a game and probably less. And so Jeff Grimes wasn't calling a game to try and maximize how many yards he got on every play. You know, he was willing to know that, you know, the other team is probably going to stop this front side run play for two, three, four yards. If Abram can punish some guys, he can maybe get a few more. But really, the purpose of this play call is that so in the third and fourth quarter, when these defenders are so locked in on our run, on our running back run game, we can hit them with these change ups because we just know that we need a few big plays to score enough to win this game. And I, I thought it was a really cool example of 
coordinators not being on their high horse, not trying to necessarily maximize themselves, but really putting their best foot forward to win the game. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that 100%. There was, mu- there was a much, I think the people, people have a bad, I think, understanding of when we talk about complimentary football, the first thing that always leaps into someone's head is that it's like, oh, you don't want to score points. That's not what complimentary football actually is. I mean, you can yeah. look at what Nick Saban does. Their offense is electric and they put massive amounts of points on the board, but they still play really good complimentary football, which is, which is depending on what your personnel is, you need to be able to protect your personnel as much as possible to put them in positions to win. You know, if you're asking a certain quarterback to do something that they can't do on a repeated basis, I mean, that's on you as a coach, not on the player for not being able to figure it out. I mean, this is not, you know, it's one thing to go to a peewee football game or a Pop Warner football game and see a coach like asking a quarterback to make a throw that you, you know, he probably can't really do, but what else are you going to do? It's a whole other ball of wax to go into a college game with the quality of athletes we see at the Big 12 or at any P5 school and just go, why are, like, why are you not putting these players in a better position? Like, this is on you as a coach. And the staff did a great job of that last year, for sure. Awesome. Well, I think quickly, this is a, an important next question here for what we're going to talk about for this future season. Um, but talking about last season, you know, uh, the concept of constraint plays is something I've tried to enter into the lexicon of every Baylor fan, because I think if you're going to understand this offense, even at a basic level, it's worth understanding what that means. And so, Jeff, I know you know this, but for the audience, you know, constraint plays, what we mean by that is kind of any play that works off of the eyes or works as a constraint from teams just plugging away and stopping that base wide zone run game, right? And so generally what that means is the running back is aiming for that wide front side and wide zone, the defensive line, the linebackers, maybe the safeties as well, all get their eyes really on target there for trying to stop that front side of the play. Um, but there's basically, you know, two or three main plays that you can think of that work as constraints off of that. And they're all naturally, you know, if wide zones go in front side, they all work off the backside, right? So this is where you get your jet sweep, which is your Monterey Baldwin TD. You know, Baylor ran some speed option last year, which is the generic term for whenever you leave that backside defensive end unblocked and the running back and the quarterback option that player, um, and they would also run some, um, sorry, I'm forgetting one here, Jeff. Uh, they ran some midline, not midline option, but they would run some kind of uh, QB. I'm trying to think of the name of that play, Jeff, where they would, the running back would go wide of the quarterback. It's not, I'm sorry. Split flow zone. Okay. Split flow zone. Yes. Thank you. Um, but anyway, just to get into this question, I think Baylor kind of struggled with their, with their constraint plays last year, especially earlier in the year, you know, I think we saw them improve later in the year. Why is that? And why should we expect improvement on those plays this upcoming season? So I, I'm going to, I'm going to issue I, not a clarification, but I would say a, a qualification for something that you said for constraint plays. I, I would also, for, for the listener at home, I, I would tell you that a constraint play, it, it, it affects constraint plays are designed to affect the eyes of a player, but constraint plays are also really designed to attack a defensive coordinator. And what I mean by that is you can go back and look at Art, at the Art Browse offense. The Art Browse offense wasn't offense entirely based off of constraint plays. It was a constraint offense, yeah. <laughs> it, and it really was. And so the, the best example of this I can think of is for the diet that you, you got to be a diehard or an idiot to be listening to us right now. So I'm assuming that everyone remembers the Baylor-Oklahoma game in 
I'm going to say 13. Um, I think at OU? At OU 13, where yeah. in the second half, I think it was the first drive of the second half, yep. they, had, they kept their corners off for five yards, and they threw the wide receiver pot pass for five yards like 10 straight times. And they went right down the field and the whole crowd was booing and they literally like pop pass five yards tackle up to the line. Guys not covered, run it again, run it again, run it again. And they ran the same play all the way down the field and then punched it in from like the two yard line. And the reason that Bryles would do that is they, Bryles really believed in basically constraint plays. That's why the wide receivers were so spread apart. The splits were, you know, I mean, these guys were like on the sidelines, literally. Um, you know, they're, they're extremely spread apart. It was this idea that if you don't cover a specific area of the field, we're going to attack that. And that's a great idea in some instances, but the, the Art Browse offense can always be summarized with one line that he always used to say, which is ball goes where they ain't. Like, you knew where the play was going in Art Browse based off the defensive alignment because it was always going where no one else was. And if you were going to line up seven yards off the wide receiver, our brows would run that play 55 times a game. I mean, he just would like, and he would think nothing else about it. They'd go up and down the field and he would just take field goals. Um, and so to, to transmit that a little bit into wide zone constraint plays, um, constraint plays really, they affect the eyes, but they also really affect what a defensive coordinator wants to call in order to stop the main, whatever your primary um, method of attack is, you know? So constraint play is, I would love to be able to just absolutely crash the front side of the zone, but I don't think that my defensive end is going to be able to maintain eye discipline very well. So I'm not going to do that because if we do that, eventually we're going to give up the jet sweep. Or I really think that, you know, we can't hold up. They're going to get four to five yards of carry. We've got to bring nine into the box and just take our chances. Then Baylor has to be able to drop back. Like the the play action shot on the rail, that's a constraint play. That is a like that is a fundamental constraint play of y'all can't y'all can't put nine in the box. Otherwise, we got to throw deep, and you just have to be able to do that. And the Baylor offense really fell off last year when they stopped hitting those. And a lot of that, honestly, was is this you know listeners of this podcast know. Um, my love for Gary Bohannon, and I'm very happy that he landed and got a starting job somewhere. But it's also true that he did not play as well in the second half of the season as he did in the first half. Uh, and a big part of the a big part of this a big part of this offense is always going to be a play action shot, deep shot for 30 plus yards. And if they can't hit that, they don't have an offense. They don't. I mean, they really they don't have a good one. And if you go back and look at the last really kind of into November and December outside of scoring opportunities generated by an outrageously good defense, they didn't really have a good offense because they couldn't hit those constraint plays. Right. And so people were able to really load up on what they did and they just, they could not counter. So I, mean, I think about, I think about Taekwon roasting that OU cornerback by like yeah. seven yards and then yeah. Gary overthrew Taekwon by like seven more yards. Um, yeah. And that's just a play that, you know, it was actually interesting when I rewatched the Baylor Kansas State game a few weeks ago. Um, I noticed that with Shapin in, um, they ran a ton of mesh, and mesh is a very staple play run across all of college football. And generally, you know, the idea of mesh, right, is you get these crossing receivers over the middle of the field. The QB generally has a pretty easy read based on what the linebackers are doing in that hole. 
However, on all these mesh plays, usually if you have a good quarterback and you have a good wide receiver, you give the quarterback the option that if the defense overloads the zone to one side and leaves that wide receiver 1v1 versus the cornerback, take the shot. And we saw that Baylor told Shapin, take that shot to Taekwon every time they leave him 1v1. And it was successful about half the time. But I think that's a great point that constraint plays are not, you know, for the run, you could you could classify them as run versus pass. But, you know, as you said, the offense really fell off last year when, you know, early in the year, especially I think about BYU, West Virginia, you know, Gary was hitting those plays the vast, vast majority of the time. And that's why Baylor was able to destroy BYU in the ground game was because they opened up the game with the pass. Um, and I think it's vital that, you know, in that constraint aspect, they're able to do that again this year. Yeah. So to answer your question exactly about how they can do it better, I think they can do it better with two things. The first one is they have to be able to hit that, like you just said, they have to be able to hit that, that deep ball more consistently. If they, Baylor will, Baylor can run against eight in the box and they will need to this year. What they can't do is they can't run against nine. No one's running against nine. I yeah. mean, you, you can't do it. And if you're, if you're going to, and that's, you know, that's why they couldn't do anything against Oklahoma State in the second half. Why they struggled against Oklahoma State in the first game, you know, I mean, they were legitimately seeing nine in the box. Nine in the boxes, yeah. You can't, like, you can't run against that. The only, the only possible answer is you got to pass them out of that. And so, if they, the, the, the three constraint points that I would really look at were the downfield shot, and so that's really going to come down to um, wide receivers. And but, uh, well, I say wide receivers, but it's going to come down a little bit to wide receivers. But it's really going to come down to interior offensive line play. I think a, a real hidden issue that Baylor had last year was that on those deep drawbacks and those big play action shots, you're dropping like eight to 10 yards back. I mean, you know, and in some cases 12, if you're doing like a four verts type of situation, I mean, you're going way, way, way back there. And when that happens, a thing that's very important is that you, you can't step into those big throws if there's guys at your feet because you just don't ever feel comfortable. And one thing that, um, the offensive line played very well last year. But one thing that the interior offensive line really struggled with was letting guys get into the feet of Bohannon. I mean, there was a lot of times where he's having to throw without being able to take the step. You know, it's not like he can really move in the pocket. If a pocket collapses from the side, you can step up. But if the pocket just kind of collapses in the front, there's not really anywhere to go outside of a scramble drill because, you know, even if you, if you turn to the side, you can't reset in the pocket once you break like that. And so... Um, a big thing for us is going to us, excuse me, I'm not on the team. A big thing for Baylor is going to be, can those interior offensive linemen pass block better? Can they really set and hold the depth of that pocket and create a genuine pocket like um, everyone's favorite hunter, Zach Wilson, um, did, at, uh, did at BYU? You know, if you go back and look at some of the BYU tape, you know, they would run these play action shots and he like, I mean, he had like an ocean of grass yeah. these throws. And so he's a good QB, but you know, if you have all the space in the world to get a ball off, it's a lot easier to be accurate when you can do that. And so the interior offensive line really being able to step up, I think is the key to maintaining those constraint plays because it does two things. The first one is it allows them to hit those deeper shots. And then the second thing is, is when they're running those, when they're running anything off the back, off of what would traditionally be the backside to whatever the front side action is, um, those guys have to be able to usually execute blocks when they're probably don't have good angles. Like they've got to be able to get their hips around a defensive lineman that's not easily aligned for them to be able to block 
or they've got to execute a cut block, or they've got to be able to go, you know, hit the second level and and, ma- and maintain contact or maintain their block um, through that. So that's I think that that's really what it comes down to. A lot of those constraint plays, if we're looking at what what can Baylor do to do better, I think it's just better interior offensive line play. That's yep. really the issue. Well, getting to that next point, then you know I was kind of struck watching BYU both uh, 2019 and 2020, which are the two years that Jeff Grimes was there. That you know they ran a lot of wide zone, but there was a lot of interior run game in their playbook. Um, yep. A lot of duo, a lot of inside zone, um, and you know you and I have talked about this and how you know naturally when you get the stretch of that horizontal um, stretch on the defense, when you know linemen especially are trying to cross face at the uh, the defensive lineman is trying to cross face in front of the offensive lineman in front of them and shoot those gaps. You know the value of having some some interior runs that work as a counterpunch. You want to just talk about that, how that works, and why that can be really effective for Baylor now that they have a second year to get into some installs. You know, this is kind of the counterpoint to what we talked about at the beginning, where they went all in on that wide zone last year. So, do you think that we're going to see more of that interior run game this year? I do. I, I don't. You know, I, I really don't know what it'll take. I really don't know what form it's going to take until we get to BYU. I think you will because it's when a defensive lineman. Defensive lineman, when they're reading the offensive lineman, offensive lineman block, you almost always it's even if your eyes don't give you any information from a defensive lineman that's executing to try to defeat a base block, they're going to very naturally move their bodies into a certain position to be able to ride go down. I there's a lot of terms for it. I've always heard it's basically you're trying to ride the rail. Um, is the phrase I've heard, which is, you know, you want to you want to make contact, get your arms extended, but you want to move with the offensive lineman on a wide zone, because if you stack up or stop, there's a massive gaping hole immediately because, you know, everyone else is going with the flow. And for something of that size, you know, it's not like it's a normal uh, it's a normal hole. It's it's something that's big enough that a single linebacker can't can't cover it off. So. Um, most of your inside run game, whatever form that takes, um, I, I think is going to be, it's going to be keyed around what do they think? It's probably going to be, I think, scheme specific, which is how does this particular uh, team like to attack the, uh, the wide zone? And then what are the, in, instead of trying to do outside base constraint plays, what are the ways that we can basically foul that up by running straight at them? So you're going to have a vertical displacement component, which is kind of similar to a power gap or a power scheme. And you're going to have a horizontally displaced component, which is the, the, the emphasis of the wide zone. We're going to see a lot more of the vertical displacement. I think that the, with another year under their belt, I think that there's going to be, there's certainly going to be more, um, pop and power on that interior offensive line um we'll see who comes out at left guard but i think i think that's definitely there um a year on the platform for guys this age matters for an offensive lineman a lot um particularly from a strength perspective so i think that that's that's really where we'll see that i I don't want to get into too much specifics on this because i don't want to speculate and put something out there that you know might be a you know we don't want to give any hints that's going to sound dumb but i just i i think that there's i think the best way to to sum that up is we'll we'll know a lot more after byu but i do think for sure that the uh you're going to see vertical interior or vertical displacement or interior runs that are really um built around uh what the opponent wants to do to avoid wide zone and we'll be able to talk a lot more about that after byu because we'll see how they want to attack them you know and like against albany if they run anything (laughs) 
wide zone for six, like 65 times, I'll be shocked. I mean, it's yeah. going to be wide zone, wide zone. Here's a play action. And we're done. Like, yeah, yeah. Just, that's not, there's not going to be anything else to that. So uh, there's just, that's what they're going to do against Albany. They're going to gear up against BYU because that's just going to be an enormous game. And yeah. I'm excited to see that because, like I said, I mean, I feel like I'm pretty comfortable with wide zone, mid zone now. Obviously, I'm no expert, but it'll be fun to see the change ups um, just as a from a fan perspective, analyzing it. OK, so I think we should jump into kind of this year. Um, and I think a helpful framework. I, I quickly did this earlier. You know, I looked at the games last last year and I kind of grouped grouped the games into five different categories uh, as far as Baylor's run game went, which was Baylor like easily imposed their will. They just destroyed the team. They could have ran wide zone every play of the game and won. And those were Texas State and Kansas. Um, And then there was a couple other games that were interesting where Baylor really dominated in the run game, but it was very much after they used the pass to open things up downfield. And that was West Virginia and BYU. Um, Both those games, you know, they ended up near 300 yards rushing, but it was after they really punished those teams downfield. Uh, next category would be like they kept pounding and then eventually wore the opposing defense down. Um, that's like Texas, OU, Ole Miss. Those are kind of games where you think about Baylor kind of struggled to put their foot in the ground first half. But by the end of the game, they had really messed with those defenses eyes enough that they were able to pull it out the end. Next category would be like kept pounding and they survived. They weren't terrible, but they never really got comfortable. And that's like Iowa State, Kansas State. And then I don't know what you want to do with the Texas Tech game last year. That was such a one-off type experience game. I'm not really sure if that goes into any category. So I would say this on the Texas Tech game. Uh, there's, you know, you're going to hear, I've heard a lot of conspiracy theories about that and McGuire. Um, when when your whole team gets the flu, like it, you just throw it out. I mean, you just do. It just, it, yep. they survive that game. That's all that matters. Nothing else matters after that. Nothing that they did carried over to how they had, how they attacked Oklahoma State or defended Oklahoma State. Right. People that played, I mean, people that have or people kids that played uh, great the entire season played terrible against Tech because they couldn't practice. Yep. They were still weak. Like I just the Tech game is just not worth talking about. Not because I don't like Texas Tech or anything like that, but because the whole team had the flu. <laughs> yeah, so it just there's not a, a there's there's just there's nothing you can really take out of that. I think we did a. I'm pretty sure we did a pod before the Big 12 title game. And I think I remembered it was kind of difficult because we caveated every single sentence with none of this applies if they play like they did last week at Tech. <laughs> it just, it, it was not, it was not the Baylor team from 2021. Uh, but I think those Iowa State and Kansas State games are interesting because they, they ran it a ton in both of those games and, and they didn't get destroyed like they did like in the Oklahoma State games. Um, but they, you know, like for instance, Kansas state, it was 48 carries at three and a half yards per carry. <laughs> like they were pounding it and it was really a test of pound the rock because, you know, it was really eking out two to six yards at a time. But then, and then finally the last category was like, Oh buddy, it did not work. They maybe had a handful of successful runs all game. And that was like both Oklahoma state games and surprisingly the TCU game. Um, which was 36 carries at five yards per carry. However, when you think about the fact that Abram opened the game with like a 50 yard run, and once you subtract that, they basically ran like 35 times for like two and a half yards per carry or something like that. It was very ugly. And interestingly, I don't know if we have time to get into this, but Baylor really struggled with TCU and OU in particular last year because those, those defensive lines stunted like crazy. 
and were really two of the, the really two of the only defenses that were able to get a lot of backfield penetration. And interestingly, both of those defensive coordinators are now gone. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if anybody in the league kind of takes that mantle as being like a heavy stunt front team, which is something wide zone should be able to handle very well. And especially once you get those interior runs going, but at the stage Baylor was at last year, they were not, uh, they just weren't well-versed in it and didn't have enough experience to kind of punish it at that point. Yeah. I, the only, the only coach that I could think of that runs that a good amount is DeRuiter, um, uh, up at tech. Now, um, I will say I'm a big fan of his. I've always loved his, I've always loved his style. Um, all the way back from when he was at AM. I mean, he was he was great at AM and he's just one of those guys that's kind of kicked around and never never kind of found his right spot, but he's excellent. Um but uh you know, he's the only one that I can really think of that's doing that on an active on a really active basis going into going into the year this year. Uh that's they didn't play well against TCU, you know, interior line just didn't play well. And, you know, they're kids and it happens and you have bad games and that was just a bad game. Um but that that is something that we taught you know we at the beginning we talked about uh interior offensive lineman's eyes which is you know do you take do you know are you looking at the right thing is the action that you're seeing do you respond correctly or are you responding to false actions like you see a guy that might be stunning towards you do you ignore that when you need to ignore it do you pay attention when you need to pay attention to it all of that is difficult um and that's also something, honestly, that just it's it's a lot of experience and trying to get better at it. I think that the team this year will be better at it just because they have a lot more reps. How good they are at it is is really kind of the first part where we get into this. Well, how how good could they be this year? Well, I think the most important question that isn't answered by how well to shape and play is can the offense can the interior offensive line take a significant step with regard to their eye discipline and their strength in both the run game and setting a high quality depth. Like that will be a enormous test um, and an enormous descript, like an enormous um, mark or measuring stick for how well they play, how well they play this year and how well Baylor actually can play and how far they can really go. Yeah. And the reason we're kind of excluding the offensive tackles from our analysis, I think, is kind of twofold. It's A, as you said, it's, you know, it's a quote unquote easier or at least more straightforward position to play to where it wasn't as reliant on experience, I think, as that interior side. You know, it's all relative. And B, you know, the second point being, you know, we have Connor Galvin and Khalil Keith at those positions who are two of the better players on the team. And so while I think we expect some you know, moderate, mild improvement from both of them this year. They're, they're not two guys that we're expecting to take necessarily a massive step. Although I think Keith can take a massive step with respect to consistency. Um, but we kind of know what we're getting out of those guys as opposed to the interior line, which have more room for growth, I think. Yeah, I, well, the, the Galvin question is really interesting to me because I, I am really... Um, I am really interested in... If whether or not I, the reason that Galvin didn't go to the league last year, I think, is he probably wasn't quite strong enough. I think that, um, and that's not really that's not his fault. That's not negative against him. I think there are a lot of guys out there, and a lot of programs that struggle to really get guys um, in the work and they needed with the COVID year. I think that if 2020 had been a regular year for him, that Galvin probably would have been gone because he would have gotten drafted. I he is abs. I don't I, I don't know if he's a starter in the league, but if he's not, he's a really good switch tackle if he can get his strength up even a little bit. Um, his particularly his upper body strength. And so if he can really take that next step from a strength perspective, he can go from 
a great left tackle to a Jason Smith dominant dominating left tackle. Right. Um, and I, 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 I will point that out specifically because 2008 Jason Smith is the best season I've ever seen by a Baylor player. And that includes the RG3 Heisman season in 2011. Jason Smith at left tackle in 2008 was doing things that like, honestly, I mean, it was like he was on the field with JV kids in certain instances. <laughs> um, you know, the, the best, uh, I, I've told the story a few times, but the best game I've ever seen an individual player play, regardless of the position, was Jason Smith at Texas Tech in 2008. And he just had, you know, that, that was, Texas Tech was like fifth in the country that year and uh, at that point. And uh, Jason Smith rolled out there and they, like, every play was run off of him. And like every play he was blocking like two or three guys, 10 yards off the line, like every single time. <laughs> and it just, it was like kind of mind blowing. I mean, you see, you would see him get on the move and he would, he'd engage with a guy, pick him up and like, he's on roller skates, 10 yards down the field, like every single play. Um, I don't know if Galvin's going to get to that level. In fact, I, it would be pretty shocking if he got to that level just because of his age, but it, you know, he, he theoretically could, but that type of, that type of growth is not, impossible for him um in terms of being able to be a i think maybe a day two pick if, if, if everything went right for him this year i think he's a day two pick yeah uh, but it you know it really does come down to his strength and how well he's able to execute well in that zone uh for keith um you know i just consistency and being able to execute on a play in play out basis i think is probably the biggest thing for him and of course i had i had like the happiest moment of my summer actually came yesterday because I had been under the impression that my favorite player on the team, Elijah Ellis, um, was <laughs> had been having. Um, I'd heard honestly that he'd had a medical retirement, um, and then Aranda came out yesterday and said that he'd had a great summer and they were looking forward to him performing. And so I'm absolutely convinced that um, Elijah Ellis is going to win the Heisman this year, and that <laughs> he's the first player ever to win the Heisman from uh, the offensive tackle position. So I don't know where he'll slot in. I can't. I cannot fathom him playing a guard spot. Um, based off what I know from him, he's an athletic superstar. Uh, that's not an exaggeration. He's an athletic superstar, but he doesn't have the strength, um, and he's too tall. I think really to probably to play that well. But you know what do I know? I'm just a layman. Um, but that the tackle spot, barring. I think two major injuries. I think they have enough depth to handle one. Yeah. If they have two major injuries, then, you know, that's a whole other ball of wax. And yep. at, at Baylor, I'll say this, you know, I, I've said this a few times to you and to a couple of our friends. This is the first time in my life or my adult life. I can't speak to the eighties, but it's the first time in my adult life that Baylor has had the offensive and defensive lines to play competitively in a playoff game against Georgia or Alabama or, or Ohio State. Doesn't mean they're going to beat them. Doesn't mean that they'd even stay within 20 of them because those the skill positions at those schools is incredible. But based off what we know right now, they can go into those games with the offense and defensive lines that they have, and they don't have to chunk up the game. They can just run their stuff. And that really, really matters. So Baylor doesn't have the off the offensive line depth, I think, that they do on the defensive line, but they they definitely have the starters, and they're going to have to build into that depth over the course of the season. I think that's going to be a real interesting trade off for Mateos this year, which is 
they're going to need to work in, you know, they've got a big, they got a big, big plethora of younger, hungry guys that are like underclassmen that they're, they're coming on. They're going to need to get reps. How does he balance getting those guys reps versus bringing out the big dogs and letting them roll? I mean, we got a chance to theoretically have like four offensive linemen graduating off this class after this year. Like you want to ride those guys as much as you can, but he is going to have to work those guys in more. So I would, particularly against games where they probably feel more comfortable against maybe, for example, Kansas is a real good example, or certainly Texas State. Um, I think you're going to see him be more aggressive with uh, rotations yeah. very early on to try to get those guys reps because they're going to, they're, you just, you need to get those guys reps. You, you never know. And, you know, Randall likes to say that you have a new team every Sunday you never know what team you're going to have on the next Sunday. And so those have to be ready to play. All right. Well, we have a little under 10 minutes here, so let's try and finish this up by maybe kind of succinctly stating like best, worst, and, you know, most likely scenarios here. And I I like to say like, keep this within like the 95th percentile of, of likelihood, right? Worst case scenario, obviously is like every offensive lineman, you know, breaks a leg and doesn't get to play this year. Right. But let's um, kind of try and keep it within that bounds there. So, you know, when I think about a worst case, sorry, go ahead, Jeff. Math brain, two standard deviations is what. Okay. Yeah, there we go. There we go. My wife would love that. She teaches stats. Um, So when I think about worst case scenario here, you know, I think, I think of, you know, probably a couple injuries on the offensive line, probably an injury at running back or so, but not even really thinking about injuries. I, I, I think, Worst case scenario probably is still to me a solid step above what we saw last year. Is that too strong for you? Be- I mean, yeah. I, I guess I guess the big question there is like, you know, how much you value Abram and Ebner as far as their abilities at back. Abram is where I would I would come point that out. They right. I would say the worst case scenario is is worse than last year because last year they had a combination of Abram who they could run into a nine man box and somehow get two yards. Right. That's stain, but that that two yards allows them to grind out like they did last year. Yeah. Uh, unless Tay is that is that dude, and we don't know that yet. Okay, so it just we we can't assume that he is. Um, unless Tay is that dude, then the worst case scenario for them would be instead of like two and a half yards on that wide zone it's a yard and a half and now all of a sudden like none of those work because they could stop them with seven yep um that's that to me is the worst case scenario is is it possible to get there it is it would require i think it would require multiple injuries at the offensive tackle and the interior line and at the running back spot because i agree is i don't think that's likely i think a realistic worst case is probably like a little worse than last year's run game but i don't i don't think that it's significantly worse than last year's run game yeah i kind of i agree with you when i started talking i was really just focused on the offensive line and then i started thinking about the running backs and the potential for injury there we take all of that out if we just leave this directly with with the um the line with the O on itself, I would say that the worst case scenario is, is still going to be better than last year because yeah. unless both offensive tackles fall off the face of the earth and two of the starting three interior offensive linemen fall off the face of the earth. So unless basically four of your starting yeah. offensive linemen are injured, 
they'll be able to run that wide zone and whatever their primary constraint plays. They probably will not run, I don't know what they're going to run, they probably will not run as much mid zone or as much middle line because they don't have GB anymore. And that's, yeah. that's a play that's just, it's built for a guy like GB because it's so easy to pull and you just, you got it. Yeah. Um, they're not going to put shape in that in that position very often this year. So whatever the primary, uh, whatever the uh, whatever the primary alternate play is, we don't know yet. Um, that's there. They should still be able to execute that with the running back talent they have on. What they have, uh, they probably will not be able to. Uh, just from a run game perspective, if we take pass blocking out of it. They should be able to get close to what they had last year, barring like an absolute catastrophe. But you know, I, I do think that it's the theoretical worst case is probably slightly worse than last year at the end of the year. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just trying, I'm trying to think of my differentiation between best case and most likely here. Um, and maybe that's, maybe that's a sign that I have some Homer glasses on, but I've been kind of stating. I'm, I'm, I've been more realistic than you on this. Um, I think a realistic a thing that I would I would tell Baylor fans to caution themselves about is this is so if you paid attention to Big Twelve that very often, you know over since Brock Purdy he's not there anymore, but ever since his freshman year, the line at about Iowa State was the same for three straight years, which was the offensive line was young, they've had another year on the platform, they're going to be a lot stronger. This is the year they're going to put it together. And for three straight years, they would roll into whoever they played the first week of the year against Northern Illinois or South Dakota State or whoever it was, and they would look like two monkeys bleeping a football. I mean, just like <laughs> totally incompetent on the offensive line. And I don't think the offensive line is going to look totally incompetent, but it's also true that strength can only do so much for you. Um, and your big gains come obviously like at the earliest some of these guys have been in these systems now for like four and five years so all of their major gains are, are could be gone and it's also like it's it's very possible that some of the interior offensive line play is just a little bit better yeah. not significantly better not a big step up but just a little bit better and yeah. if that is the case that's kind of my if i'm being honest like that's kind of my realistic my realistic scenario, which is the interior offensive line is just a little bit better. They're not as good as we would want them to be, but I do think that both the offensive tackles will take a significant step forward. And so as a result of that, like, I think that it's going to be a much, it's, it's, it's a little difficult to talk about this because I'm kind of just assuming a, a better, a better passing game. And we'll talk about that. I know at another time, but Assuming that those constraint plays we talked about earlier are are hittable deep, and assuming a good pass play, I think a realistic scenario is probably twenty to thirty. Like a tw I don't know how to describe it exactly, but like a twenty to thirty percent efficiency increase over what we saw last year. Um, it, it's you know it's also possible that Tade turns around and or excuse me not Tade but it's also possible that like well. We'll talk about best case scenarios in a second because I'll let you handle that. But that would be my realistic would be like a 20 to 30 percent uh, increase. They're probably splitting between um, squirrel fleeks and uh, Tay. I don't know how much fleeks is really going to get the ball. That seems like it's I, I never can really tell like how much he's really going to get used in that spot because he just he seems like a, a jack of all trades, master of none from a athletic standpoint or as a, a skill position player. Um, but if they can get him involved, you know, it seems like it's going to get spread across there and that's kind of where we're at. 
that'd be more realistic. I think my quick, my quick retort to that would be, you know, last year against TCU when they were getting their butt whipped up front, Mateos's only real counter and Grimes's only real counter was to tell those guys up front, execute better. You know, we prep for this all week, execute better this year. They can say, okay, we're getting all these stunts. Let's run duo. Um, I think that is a big difference. Okay. And quickly for a best case scenario, um, Jeff, I quickly just want your reaction to the idea that I think that if Squirrel stays healthy for 10 plus games this year, he's pretty clearly the best back to ever put on a Baylor uniform. Again, I don't know who played running back back in the 50s. I know Walter Abercrombie was a big deal back in the Uh, 80s, but uh, I feel pretty confident about that. How do you feel about that? And respond in two minutes. (laughs) Okay, that is a hot. That's a that's not a hot take. It's a thermonuclear hot take. Um, I, I got to see more out of him before I can even go near that. Um, there are three names that really jump out, um, that I think of like that. Uh, but I will say that from seeing the way that he moves in the box, uh, he reminds me of, um, oh God, I'm, I'm not going to use that reference. No one is going to ever understand that. But the 49ers running back from the 1980s, um, he reminds me of him in terms of he's always like very slippery in the hole and he's never getting squared up, no. but. I will say he's also basically been injured by being breathed on like every single time for the last four years. So we got to see how he holds up for there. I will say though, that like the realistic best thermonuclear hot take, you could talk me into, well, actually put it this way, the thermonuclear hot take best case scenario would be squirrel for Heisman because he could get 25 carries and average 220 yards a game if the offensive if the offense is like humming and dumbing it's like just rolling and rolling and rolling and you just could absolutely i can already see that like campaign coming along in my head and all of that stuff um i think a realistic a realistic um best case scenario though is offensive line has a 30 to 50 percent increase uh galvin is a day two pick uh, Keith is a day two to day three pick and Baylor has one of the five best offensive lines in college football and an offensive line that could go against Georgia's defensive front from last year and not dominate them, but stand up and be able to put them in a situation where they could score 20 to 30 points. Uh, that's a realistic best case for scenario for this offensive line. Awesome. Well, uh, we kind of cut ourselves short there at the end, but that's our fault. We'll do many more of these in the future. I hope you all enjoyed it. Jeff, thanks for uh, thanks for making it on with your stressful life. Rock on, and uh, hopefully talk to you next week, and we'll figure out what topic we're getting after. All right, y'all. Have a good week.